Bible this morning, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, and when you find your place, we'll honor the Word of God as we read our opening text. Someone asked, how long are we going to be in Matthew 10? I said, that may be till the end of the year. Who knows? After Matthew 10, verse 1, the Bible says, When he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And we've been doing a study on the twelve disciples, who he would name apostles. And the Bible says in verse 2, Now the name of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew. And then last Sunday we looked at Thomas and Matthew the publican. Today we're going to be looking at James the son of Alphaeus and Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus, as well as Simon the Canaanite. And we're going to leave Judas Iscariot for next week. It says, who also betrayed him. Father, we thank you for your word today. May you bring to life the living word in our hearts. May Christ be exalted in Christ alone. If anyone today doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, may today be the day that the glory of God is revealed to their soul and they are struck with the grandeur and greatness of your holiness and would cause them to respond as Peter who said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord that the gospel of salvation would shine into their souls. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. In Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, there is a tomb there that has been dedicated to those brave men and women who have died at war and were not able to be identified. It's called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Here's a picture of that. Some of you may have been to that. Inscribed on the tomb are the following words. Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. That tomb is a way to tell those unidentified soldiers that we have not forgotten you and that we want to honor you. A very commendable thing. But I just... Thinking about that, wonder how many faithful Christians have died in different parts, perhaps even remote places around the world, totally unknown and totally forgotten today. This last week I was up in Canton at a meeting with some pastors, and um, we're up there close to the National Football Hall of Fame, and years ago I took an afternoon walk through that Hall of Fame, which was a very... uh, neat experience, but even as a football fan, I was struck with how fleeting the glory of those achievements are. I mean, it just got men that that were once filling stadiums to be heralded are, are many forgotten except by those strong fanatics of football still. I mean, I thought how how quick it passes. I mean, most people don't even know who won the Super Bowl last year. I forgot whether Ohio State beat Michigan or not last year. I had to look it up and then I was saddened. I thought, oh, we lost to them? Somebody said Michigan fans are like cicadas. They come out every 17 years and make a lot of noise. Do we accept Michigan fans here? Yes, at the altar, you know, right at the end of service. (laughs) No, we love Michigan fans. The Bible says not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and in Samaria, right? We cross the border into enemy territory and bring the gospel. But all kidding aside, 
In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you have what's been known as the great hall of faith. And written down in God's eternal words are the great acts of faith by great men and women of yesteryear. But it gets to the end of Hebrews and it begins to list those whose names that nobody remembers. It says in Hebrews 11.36, And others had trials of cruel mocking and scourging, yea, moreover of bond and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And, And God says, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It is true that God does, in fact, know all the names of those who gave their life in battles in this nation. But how much more does God know and will eternally bless those who have lived faithfully for Him, even though they are unknown by the world? God makes clear that our labor, our work, our service to Him is not in vain. He knows all that we do and He will reward that. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul declares in Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. You know, there are some things we can do in life that waste time. Anybody ever wasted portions of your day or life and said, boy, I wish I could have had that time back? But one place you will never waste your life is in service to God. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that one day we will stand before God and He will try all the works of our life as a believer before what's known as the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ. And He will give us rewards for those things that we have done for His glory. Friend, there may be times you feel that you're living for the Lord and serving faithfully, but are unnoticed by so many. Perhaps this has even discouraged you because you feel like you've been underappreciated. You know, this can happen even in people's family or among friends, by people at church. But listen, don't let that discourage you. Remember that the Lord sees all that you do. Discouragement will only come when you and I make men our motive. Did you hear that? It's when you create a horizontal motive when you should have a vertical drive. It's nice to be appreciated that people notice that what you're doing, but realize today your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What you do for the Lord is never wasted unless you do it for the wrong motive. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward His name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God doesn't forget Today we come to the next names in our list of 12 disciples. And what you find is these men are just as faithful to the Lord as the other 12. They were just as willing to leave everything to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They left job, home, families, comfort, safety, security. They went all in for Jesus. They served alongside the other 12. But they are never said to have pulled back. They never said to have quit. And history records that they preached to their dying death. But when you begin to examine their life in Scripture, next to nothing is known about them. Two of them are only mentioned by name. A third is only said to have said one thing in the Scriptures. So is this unfair to these men? Do they somehow get slighted by the Lord? Or were they just not very important? 
Well, Jesus said in Matthew 19 that there are going to be three that will also be sitting on 12 thrones in the kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And according to Revelation 21, their very names will be inscribed in the foundation stones of New Jerusalem. (laughs) So friend, the great joy for the Christian is that you and I, all that we do for the Lord, even though unknown many times by the world of men, will always be remembered by God. But if you seek men's praise, you have your reward. But if you seek God's honor, then your reward is eternal. eternal. So let's take a look at these three men today. The first is called James the Less. Imagine that being your name. James was a common name in Scripture. There are, in fact, three James in the New Testament. James the Apostle and brother of John. We looked at him. They were called the sons of Boanerges are the sons of thunder, and their father's name was Zebedee. Second James is the James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the epistle of James. He became the bishop or pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he wrote the epistle of James, as I mentioned. Thirdly is James, the apostle, and he is distinguished from the other two because he is called James, the son of Alphaeus. Now the name James comes from the same Hebrew word Yechab or Jacob, and it just means like supplanter. Maybe he was a wily young man when he grew up. But he's called James, the son of Alphaeus. And you may wonder why they often list the names of the fathers. Well, in those days, they didn't have last names. So the way you would distinguish someone from someone else is you would list the name of their father or their grandfather. Now, some have proposed that this James could have been the brother of Matthew because Matthew also had a father named Alphaeus. This is a possibility also that they say that he could have been the cousin of Jesus. And so let me briefly look at those. John chapter 19, verse 25, it says this. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. So Mary, the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus, had a sister whose name was Mary, who she was the wife of Cleophas. Now Cleophas is the Aramaic for the Greek name Alphaeus. So the Greek Alphaeus is just the exact same name Cleophas, but just in a different language. So Cleophas and Alphaeus are the same person. That would make James' mother Mary, which is a sister to the Virgin Mary. More support lends itself to this view in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, where it tells us there specifically that James' mother was Mary. It says, There were also women looking on afar, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the less. So I lean toward doubting that he was the co- or brother of Matthew. And the reason for that is the New Testament never says they're brothers. But the New Testament does go out of its way to say Peter and Andrew are brothers, right? It goes out of its way to tell us that uh, James and John were brothers. But why wouldn't it say that James the less and Matthew were brothers? So I, I, I lean toward them just both having a father whose name was Alphaeus. Uh, but, but I do think that James was the cousin of Jesus, just as John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus, because both the father and mother's name lines up in Scripture, and it just seems very likely. Plus, Jerome and others believe that to be the case from the 5th century. Now, in Scripture, he is referred to as James the Less, as Mark 15, verse 40 says. The word less is the Greek word mikros, And it can have three meanings. It can mean small or little. It can mean young in age. Or it can mean like less in rank. 
I'll give you the three examples of how it's used in the Bible. Matthew 18, 6, it says, But whoso shall offend one of these micros ones, or little in age ones, which believe in me, it were better for him than a mill. So there it's talking about one who's young in age. Luke 19, 3, it says, And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, this is Zacchaeus, and could not for the press, because he was of micros of stature. This is little micro Zacchaeus. Little Zacchaeus, right? Climbed up in a sycamore tree. I'd have been like, what's the problem? You can't see Zacchaeus? So, uh, but then third third way it could be meaning is in rank. Luke 7, 28 uses it that way as well. It says, for I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist, but he that is micros in the kingdom is greater than he. So you see there the, the word is used in the idea of being ranked. So James could have been younger in age. It would be unlikely that they would call him James the micros if he was older. It would have been also probable that he could have been shorter. It would have been uh, unusual for someone to call him James the, the, the micros if he was a, a very tall guy. But the most likely reason they called him the less is because he was less in rank. James, the son of Zebedee, part of the inner three, known as the son of thunder, was, was a man of great passion, great zeal, and great prominence. So James the Less very likely had that title because he was ranked underneath James, the son of Zebedee. So what do we know about James? Well, we don't, well he, he didn't speak much. He humbly accepted his role as being subordinate. He knew how to submit to leadership and to be a servant. He's actually never seen speaking in the New Testament, never questioning, never arguing. He's just an obscure figure, but he's found listed among the 12 apostles. So you say, what can we learn from a guy who doesn't speak a lot? Well, often we can learn from what people say, but sometimes we can learn even more by what they don't say. How much we can learn from one who, if the cousin of Jesus never used that to exert the right to be in the front of the line. How much we can learn from someone who faithfully served the Lord, even when viewed as ranking others in the group. You know, I just want to say, praise God for people that are faithful, who don't need to have their name on billboards, on sides of buildings, or on postages. One reason the Lord is working, I believe, so mightily through the ministries here at Lighthouse is there are so many humble servants of God that are not looking for titles, not looking for their name to be elevated, not looking to be noticed, who humbly serve behind the scenes to allow the ministries to flourish. Every week, multiple times, people come in, dozens of people who help clean the building. There's people who help set up and tear down rooms each week, those who help with our bus routes, those who come in and read the missions letters and pray over those and highlight needs, those who go to right place and different places where elderly folks are to minister and pick up folks to bring them here, those who visit hospitals, those who minister to widows, those who help bring meals to those who've had surgery or or had babies, those who work in our nursery and toddlers, and we praise God for those dear ladies, those who work in the sound booth and the tech team, those who are in kids' classes who faithfully teach those kids every week, those who minister to widows. Again, as I said, on our handyman team, those who teach and work and help in our teen department, those who help and teach in our kids' classes. The list can go on and on and on, but I'm telling you, Lighthouse would never function if it weren't for those hundred of people that are helping behind the scenes that many people don't even know their names and don't realize how much of a big impact they are because this church is not about a Josh Bevan or about any 
anyone else that's teaching typically from the platform of this church. It's about a multitude of servants of Jesus Christ that this place would never function if God was not working through them to allow this to come to pass. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It is not about us being highlighted. I consider the name James the less. James is never wanting to remove that title. It's never seen in the scriptures doing that. He humbly receives a lower seat. Perhaps it would be good for all of us to consider adding the words the less to the end of our names, at least in our hearts and in a spiritual sense. You know, humility is a great virtue of God. One man called it, humility is, the, is magnetism for the Holy Spirit to be drawn and working in your life. Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, 12, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, but he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Jesus taught the humble are the ones who are going to enter the kingdom in Matthew 5, verse 3. It's the poor in spirit. The Lord taught if you want to be great in the kingdom, it says humble yourself like a little child, the same as greatest in the kingdom. I think about the Apostle Paul who said, I serve the Lord with all humility of mind. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, Let a man account of us as the ministers of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. The word ministers is from the Greek word huparetes. It's a word for, that, that, that was used for an under rower, third level galley rower at the bottom of the ship, chained to the oar as you're pulling it. Nobody knew who you were and you rode until you died. They threw you out and put somebody in your place. He said, as an apostle, just consider me a third level galley slave. Faithfully doing what God's called me to do. I think about John the Baptist when his disciples saw all the people following Jesus. said, you know, John, you were popular. You know, everybody's leaving you and going to Jesus and his disciples will be baptized. Now, John didn't fight for attention. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, the greatest example of humility is our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Philippians 2 tells us, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form, the imagio of God, the image of God, thought it not to be robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. This is the Greek kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ, and took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And that wasn't even low enough. And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. <laughs> Let this mind be in you. Let that mind be in you. And it seems that James the less carried that torch. He served the Lord in the, in, in the realm of obscurity. James was just as called and surrendered as Peter and James the greater and John, but God's plan for him was less, or different I should say. How important is it to be able to serve God without needing to be well-known or popular? There are incredible and faithful servants of God all around the world who have died in obscurity. Some men who've pastored small little flocks and people who've taught small numbers of people and faithfully did that their dying day and nobody, they didn't gather by hundreds around their graveside and many died in places of obscurity in this world. But I can tell you in heaven they're remembered. The Lord doesn't forget According to early church fathers, James went to preach in Persia, which is modern Iran. Isn't that interesting? He was martyred for the gospel. How incredible it would have been if, and how different today would be if Iran would have received the gospel. But we know just about 500 years later, the great influx of the evils of Islam took over. 
Second man we see here is a man named Labius. You say, who in the world is Labius? I, I, I confess when you read through the list of the 12 disciples and you re- compare the different accounts, they, they, they can be confusing because they list them with different names. Labius also had the name Thaddeus, also had the name Judas. Uh, according to 4th century Bible scholar Jerome, he called Labius Trinomius, or the man with three names. It is believed that at birth his name was Judas, which was a popular name during New Testament times. The word Judas means Jehovah leads. <laughs> Judas has become a very unpopular name for the last 2,000 years, as we'll see why next week. And uh, the names Labius and Thaddeus were nicknames believed to be given to him. Labius, from the Hebrew lab, means the inner man, the heart, and a place of courage and passion. It would suggest that Judas was a man of the heart who had genuine internal passion, real love and real courage birthed out of that love. And we say today when someone does something with passion, you know, they put all of their heart into it. And, and, and they showed a lot of heart. That's kind of the idea. He was also called Thaddeus. It's an interesting. It's from the Hebrew word shad, which refers to a female breast. And the name means breast child or bosom child. It, 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 was, it was a name given to the youngest in the family. Like we say it today, the baby of the family. You know, we, you, when you're young, you take that as a negative. The older you get, you love being the baby of the family. I mean, I would have been the baby of the family. But I had a, another child. They had a child after me. And uh, he got all the fruity pebbles. <laughs> I got cornflakes, non-frosted cornflakes. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I got Cheerios. He got Honey Nut Cheerios. I didn't, even, I didn't get Pop-Tarts. I got like Bran Flakes. I remember coming back from college and I'd open up, you know, we used to hide stuff from each other. We were, I don't know if that's called stealing or lying or what, but we were, we were deceiving, you know, as much as we could hide. You know, we, he'd bring home a pack of Pop-Tarts. We'd hide all of them underneath different places around the house. And I come home and he's eating all this. And I just thought, you know, so as a third child, anybody else a third child? You know what I'm talking about, that middle child? It's, yeah, yeah, so woe is us. So Thaddeus is the baby of the family. This is, this, this is a nickname given to him. Uh, but there's only one place where you see this man named Judas Labius, or we could just call him Thaddeus today for clarity and maybe simplicity. Uh, turn to John 14. This is the only place he has found speaking. Uh, interesting portion of Scripture, very, very powerful portion of Scripture. Matthew chapter number 14. It's the night before Jesus Christ is crucified. Matthew 14, very powerful passage. Jesus says to them in verse 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. And so here Thaddeus speaks up in verse 22. It says, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot. So this is Judas, Thaddeus, same guy. Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? So this response shows that Judas felt he was close enough to Christ to be able to speak this question. And so this was something that was on the heart of the disciples often. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, after Jesus Christ had been 
risen from the dead. It says, when therefore they were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they, they were looking for this physical manifestation of the kingdom. So Judas felt comfortable enough to interrupt and ask Jesus this question. And it showed his mindset was consistent with the mindset of the day. He wanted to know, how are we different from the world? What causes you to manifest yourself to the world and not to us? Or I'm sorry, to us and not to the world. Why would you manifest yourself to us and not into the world? Look at the Lord's reply in verse 23. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my saying, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. And so the Lord tells us the only ones that he will manifest himself to are those who do two things. And what were they? That you would love him and that you would keep his commandments. He said in chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He tells us in verse 21 again, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus teach love is connected to obedience? Love is not just some sentimentality. It's not just some inward feeling. Love is defined with verbs in the Bible, not adjectives. The Bible marries love and obedience together. And so, if you love Jesus, you will obey him. I would ask this simple question. Is there areas of your life that you are knowingly disobeying God in? That you know that you are disobeying God in? You know, there are two types of sins. Sins of commission and omission. Commission are like things God says, don't do these things, don't commit these things, such as lying, blasphemy, fornication, lust. Those are, when when we commit sin, it is an act of hate against God. It is a loveless act against God. There's also sins of omission. The Bible says we are to forgive. We are to love one another as ourself. The Bible even commands us to be baptized. If you won't forgive others, if you won't love others like Christ loved you and as we're called to, and if you're saved and you say, I'm not sure I'm going to get baptized, number one, you should question whether you're truly saved. And number two, you have all the right to question that you don't really love Jesus like you should. Because those who love Christ will obey Christ. It's not obedience that brings salvation. It's salvation that brings obedience. Salvation is the root. Obedience is the fruit, right? That's what James 2 tells us, isn't it? And so those who love Christ will obey him. Those who do not love him will not. And those who love and obey Christ, Christ will reveal himself to them. You know, a radio or television can broadcast a message across the nation with an electronic signal, but only those with the receiver can pick up the signal. And only those who have ears to hear will hear the words and truth of Christ. And many today have closed their eyes and ears to the truth. They're internally blinded to the realities that God is trying to tell them. You know, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which is the image of God should shine unto them. So here, Judas, or Thaddeus, or Labius, the heart child, the man of inward passion and courage, 
reminds us our internal man must love Christ and our outward man must obey him. History says that he was especially gifted to heal. He went on to minister in Syria. He found a church in Edessa, an area in modern Turkey. History says that he healed the king there, but the king's nephew got very upset and there was a great opposition against him because of that. And the king's nephew ended up having Judas beaten to death with a club and that has become the symbol of that apostle throughout history. Beaten to death with a club. That's who Judas was, the the obscure fellow disciple, faithful to the end. Let's look at a third and final man in the group on the list of disciples. He's listed in the 11th column of names. His name is Simon. And here the word Canaanite is used. Better, Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So Simon the Canaanite is distinguished from Simon Peter. The word Canaanite does not speak of a geographical location. That's why if you just look that up in a dictionary, you would get the wrong meaning. The Greek word is Canaanoias, which is the English Canaanian referred to as a member of the Jewish sect that bitterly opposed the Roman domination of ancient Palestine. It would have been a zealot. The Greek term Canaanian is the transliteration of the Aramaic Canaan, which is translated as zealot. That's why other places of the New Testament is translated as Simon the Zealot or in some translations today. So it's better to understand him as Simon the Zealot because he is not from Canaan. That's, that's not a designation of his location. Luke 6.15 lists him as Simon the Zealot. Acts 1.13, Simon the Zealot. So the word doesn't have to do with, again, the location. It has to do with who this man was prior to salvation. Before he was saved, he was a part of a people group known as the Zealots. There were four religious groups in that day. There were those who were known as the Pharisees, and they were the Orthodox group. They were the Bible guys, but they were the legalists. And their legalism blinded them to the reality of Christ. Boy, legalism is blinding, isn't it? Anybody been a part of a legalistic church before? Praise God you survived that. Because that, can, that, that has destroyed many people's faith. Second is Sadducees. It's used, they, they were a group who used religion to gain political power and finance. Then you had the group called the Essenes. They were like the monks back then. This was, they believed John the Baptist was probably part of the group of the Essenes. Um, and then you have the Zealots. They were the ones who sought to overthrow Rome. They were the fourth religious group that were super passionate and they believed to use the sword to gain uh, religious advancement and to remove the oppression of Rome. They, they were, um, they, they were uh, not um, looked on favorably by Jewish historians such as Josephus. He called these men Sicari, uh, which means dagger men. They, they would go up to Roman soldiers and Romans uh, who were seeking to advance the cause of Rome and just stick a blade in their back and kill them underneath their rib. They would go up to somebody who um, was, was a Jew who was favorable, favorable to Rome, such as publicans, and they would kill these guys. And this happened all the time. They would go and make surprise attacks on Roman soldiers and Roman outposts, killing them, hiding in the mountains. 
Some of you may be familiar with the story of Masada, but in 66 AD, a group of these zealots led by a man named Eleazar, and again, they were birthed out of the Maccabean period, which is the 400 years between Old Testament, Malachi, New Testament, Book of Matthew, uh, Judas Maccabees, if you're familiar with him. But they, uh, they, in 66 AD, a group of the zealous led by Eleazar overtook Masada, which is a Herodian fortress. I was there in 2011. King Herod built a uh, palace on the side of this mountain. It's about 400 feet high out near the Dead Sea. And uh, in 70 AD, the Romans were worn out by the zealots. They got so sick of them that they came in and destroyed Jerusalem and burnt the temple because of the, the, the zealots. And uh, more of the zealots fled to Masada, and this story has become legendary. Around 960 men, women, and children held Masada, which was about 400 feet high. And you could read the story later yourself, but it's very interesting. In a desert, uh, and, and, and they had on the top of Masada an, like an, a system, an aqueduct system that would gather rain and, and, and collect it to where you could live up there. And they would plant crops and, and, and like, so, so these zealots lived up there and the Romans could not reach them because of the height of it. Uh, and they were there for over th- uh, three years. So thousands of Roman soldiers were out there and they were like, you know, do we have to continue after these guys? Just a few hundred of them up there. But Rome never felt they conquered these Israel and Jerusalem until they got these zealots wiped out. So they ended up building a 375-foot ramp all the way up the mountain with a rock out in the middle of the desert. So while these Romans are building this, I mean, these guys are literally up there and stories are told of them bathing and splashing water and just mocking the Romans because they couldn't get to them. Interestingly, at the uh, history says the night before they were to penetrate that wall after they built the ramp, they made a large battering ram. Uh, there was an Eleazar gave a great speech, gathered all the people together. And he said, we're, um, we're not going to let the Romans take us. He says, all of us men will go home and kill our own wives and kill our children before we commit suicide. And so when the Romans burst through, expecting to find a bloody battle in that entryway, they found everyone there dead. Every man had killed his wife, killed his children before he committed suicide himself. The only ones left were two mothers and, and five children that had hidden themselves from this bloody massacre who told the story. That just gives you an idea of the zeal of this group. You think these guys were passionate? Yeah. Simon the zealot. Simon the guy that came from that group. Who, who thinks that he may have had a little bit of a problem when Jesus said, you need to pay your taxes to Rome? You think Matthew 21 was a little hard for him to swallow? Matthew 22, 21? What about when Jesus talked about during the end times when Jerusalem would be overcome by Gentiles and, and, or, or there would be a period of Gentiles uh, taking over Jerusalem and holding Jerusalem until the end times and Christ comes back? I mean, th- this must have stirred him according to Luke 21 when Jesus taught these things. H- how do you feel like when maybe he teamed up, hey, Hey, why don't you, uh, Simon, why don't you and Matthew go pray together today? You think Matthew probably kept one eye open on him? You know, the Bible doesn't say, but when they were in the garden and, and uh, Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, buy one. And he's just telling them that, you know, life's going to become difficult. And, and it says, one of them said, here's two swords, Lord. Uh, very likely, uh, one of those men was uh, Simon the Zealot. He's like, I still got my daggers over here, you know. You can take those. And Jesus said, no, put those away. 
And Jesus said, those who live by the sword shall. And isn't that what happened with the zealots? And so we can see that Simon, who was once a, a political activist, zealous, willing to kill his enemies, became one who received the words of Christ. And I think it's interesting because Simon is listed with Judas Iscariot. I think they both entered into follow, following Jesus for the same cause. I think Judas Iscariot wanted to align himself with Jesus because he saw Jesus as a great opportunity for worldly success. And I think Simon probably thought, you know, if this is the Messiah, then he's going to overthrow Rome and I need to align myself with him. But somewhere along the line, Simon began to see the spiritual reality, but Judas never did. Very likely, Simon and Judas were preaching partners because they went out two by two. They would have very likely been the guys that were ministering one with another. But you know, I think it's very interesting as well that not only did he turn his mindset from, from physical deliverance to realizing, you know, the greatest deliverance Jesus could give us is not deliverance from Rome, but deliverance from sin. And you know what? The Romans aren't our enemy. They're our mission field. And I think some today may need to hear that. You know, there are some people today that are so politically driven that you've turned the mission field into an enemy, and that is sinful. And perhaps today you need to come down, kneel before your God, and say, forgive me for being so hateful. Because that's exactly what would have kept Simon from being used by God. Simon and Matthew were on the total opposite spectrums of the political arena. You understand that? I mean, Simon would have killed Matthew. Do you understand? He would have killed him. And so today, obviously, there are some wicked things going on in politics. We point out the sin. We point out the wrong. We point out those things. But you need to understand, there is a, there's a big difference between pointing out error and turning your mission field into your enemy. Does that make sense today? Some of us can learn some things from these guys. History says he preached the gospel in Perea was killed for not being willing to sacrifice to the pagan sun god in that area. So, in conclusion, what can we learn from James the Less, Labius, Thaddeus, Judas, the man with three names, and Simon the Zealot? We can learn that our service to the Lord is not about public recognition. It's not about people remembering our names, but remembering the Lord. We can learn to serve the Lord with all humility of mind. We're just under rowers pulling our oar, doing our part. And perhaps even today, people will visit Arlington National Cemetery remembering the unknown soldier. But I just think about how many faithful believers have died through the years, and over them the words could be read, Here rest in honored glory a faithful servant of the Lord, known only to God. Matthew 25 is a picture in heaven, and the king is telling those on his left hand, he said, You've not done any of these things, depart from me you workers of iniquity. But to, to those on his right, he said, when I was hungry, you, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. You came and visited me when I was sick. And they said, Lord, when did we see you and do that? Isn't it fascinating that Jesus in heaven as king knows every single detail and the people standing before him are shocked by that. And he says, as much as you did it to them, you did it to me. This week, we get to go out and serve Jesus. And he sees it. 
And when you serve the least at Lighthouse, you're serving the Lord. I'll never forget this young boy in Chillicothe. He was the most rotten bus kid we had. The most, I mean, this kid was as bad as just as ornery. And I just, I wanted to whip the fire out of that kid if I was, but I didn't. And I remember one day he come up to me, he's like, hey, Josh. And he was, he's like, can you tie my shoe? <laughs> and I thought, this little punk. And the last thing I want to do is tie this kid's shoe. I can tell you, at that very moment, there was not holiness in my heart. <laughs> if you had this kid, you'd have felt the same way. Don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. But I can tell you, in that same moment, it was like the Holy Spirit took his word and implanted it into my heart and said, as much as you do it to the least of these, you, you want to serve me, Josh? You tie that boy's shoe. And I mean, it broke me. I got down on my knees and I tied his shoe and I gave him a hug and he ran off and he's probably like, why is this guy hugging me up? As much as you do to the least of these. And you know what? It's not about people remembering your name. It's not about people knowing what you've done. One day you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done, thou faithful servant. For your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not saved today, today could be the day of salvation. We'll have men and women standing up front. I'll be up front. If you don't know the answer to this question, if you stood before God and he said, why shall I let you into heaven? You don't know what you would say. We'd love to sit down with the word of God, pull you aside in a private room and show you how you can know the answer to that. Maybe today you just need to come and say, Lord, here's my life. Just use me. I don't need the spotlight. I don't need my name on the side of a building. I just want to serve you with my life. I want my life to matter. Amen. Let's all stand this morning. Father, we thank you for your word today. And our hearts are so encouraged by the faithfulness of those who served in obscurity. Often we talk about Peter. We talk about James. We talk about John. We talk about Matthew. None of us this week talk about Labius. We don't talk about Simon the Zealot. We don't talk about James the less. Lord, so much we can learn from them. And I pray today that we would all in our hearts and minds find ourselves willing to take the name the less, less in rank, that we would esteem others better than ourselves. Help us never to be discouraged in our service to you. How could we be discouraged? Discouragement would only come if we begin to concern ourselves more with the praise of men than the honor of Christ. Forgive us of such a sin. Cleanse our hearts from worldly applause. Our prize is Christ. And let us run our race faithfully for your glory alone. Anyone today doesn't know Christ, may today be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name.